Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. With a collapse, then a real steep decline starts to set in. And then you go down a lot in things like industrial output, food production in the model, also population. So we will see an increase in mortality and of course also in welfare levels. Other things that were causing the collapse like pollution go down as well. So we plunge back below Earth's carrying capacity. And then at that point, the system we had in the past is now broken beyond repair and we will have a new system. I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. In 1972, a small group of highly esteemed thinkers that called itself the Club of Rome got together to chew over a thorny question. What would happen if humanity continued to consume the world's finite resources as if they were limitless? If it doggedly and insanely insisted we could have infinite growth on a finite planet? Their efforts generated the now-famous 1972 paper published by MIT, The Limits to Growth, which basically provided the answer. Civilization as we know it will collapse and will do so by around 2040, give or take. The paper became a book that sold more than 30 million copies and is said to have spawned the sustainability movement, although back then scientists spoke of stabilisation rather than sustainability, which frankly I prefer as a term to describe what we are shooting for here. Almost 50 years later, a woman called Gaia Harrington, a Dutch economist and senior director for accounting firm KPMG, and as it happens, an advisor to the Club of Rome, decided to crunch the numbers to see if the paper held true. Was everything going to come to a head in, well, 17 years from now? Shockingly, the double master's Harvard graduate found the predictions were spot on. Now, there's something about an economist delivering this kind of news. It kind of hammers at home louder and more profoundly when money people point out, well, the obvious, that this more, more, more system just doesn't work. One of the biggest frustrations, I think, possibly the most insurmountable one in any debate about our future on this planet, is our society's refusal to uncouple from growth. It's an insane way of thinking about things, but it remains the prevailing ideology. Now, we've covered off a number of degrowth economics themes here on WILD and theories for how things could look beyond the growth model. 
But in this chat, Gaia shows how all of this comes together. She also explains things in terms of systems dynamics and provides potential ways out that I think you'll find make a lot of sense. It's not just about consuming less and switching to sustainables. It's also about, among a few other very tangible things, fighting for women's rights. Okay, let's meet Gaia Harrington. Have I got this right? Are mm-hmm. you about to have a baby? I am, yes. I'm, I'm almost seven months pregnant. Well, thank you so much for making time to do this conversation. I mean, it's a kind of a, a heavy one to be doing in the heat here in Europe. Actually, whereabouts are you? I'm in Washington, D.C., but it's quite hot too here. Hot yeah, and yeah. humid. Yeah. yeah, it's stinking hot here. So why don't we get stuck in? And I might get you to unpack what that 1972 report, which kind of stopped the world at the time, like the world paid attention to this report. What did it actually say? So what it did, it built the first systems model of the world. Dynamic systems modeling is a way of modeling where all variables can interact, basically. And that way you, you get dynamics that you can't really model with some other mainstream models. So, for example, exponential decay, exponential growth, or long delays in feedbacks. You can also have different kind of variables. So, for example... Many models take very quantitative input only, and so you can measure economic things, amounts, uh, you know, money, but social factors, behavioral factors, environmental factors to some extent are much harder to model in that sense. And so this model, this which was called World 3, allowed for all kinds of different environmental, social governance variables to interact. And so what they did with that is they ran it They are based on varying assumptions and see what kind of dynamics we would see over the longer time. So it wasn't meant for point predictions at all, just general dynamics in the world. So food production, industrial output, population, pollution levels, all at the global level. How will they interact over time? What kind of developments do we see? And what they found was the business as usual scenario. So the one that ran on historical averages only without any additional assumptions ended in collapse in the 21st century. This was in 1972 and so 20th century. But in this century, there would be a collapse, meaning not the end of uh, civilization, but a steep decline from a previous peak in, for example, things like industrial output and also our well-being levels. And that peak, so just before the steep decline sets in, would be around present time. So that's when I thought, okay, that's interesting. Let's see if empirical data now you know, we have a couple of decades of empirical data. Let's see if that matches up with any of these scenarios. Hopefully not the business as usual one. There were also other scenarios, and one of them was the stabilized world. And that was the only one in which a collapse was avoided. But that one deviated significantly from historical averages. So in that, the assumption is that people, humanity, these are all global variables, at the global level decides to let go of a continuous growth in industrial output, so the production of stuff, which is what 
for a recent history we have been doing, right? We're, we're, we want GDP growth. GDP doesn't measure a whole lot of things. It doesn't necessarily measure our health or our happiness. It, it measures stuff. Again, because that's relatively easier to quantify. And so if you keep pushing for that continuous growth in industrial output, basically, that's, again, the, the model said we will have a collapse. If we let go of that and then the resources that are freed up from that, we divert very deliberately to things like education and proper healthcare, and uh, as well as pollution abatement uh, technologies, then we avoid it and then we maintain high welfare levels for the rest of the century. I just want to maybe break some of that down for a moment because, like you said, we reach a peak around about now. We're talking 2023. But from what I understand, there's a decline. And really what this study did was measure this assumption that we could keep growing, that we would have this infinite growth and it was modelling that. But what it found was that when it brought in together all of these different variables, these systems that, you know, interacted and so on, Something happened in 2040. There was a sort of a prediction that this model set out. Can you explain what that was? Because as you say, in 2023, kind of now, we hit a peak, but then things descend. So does it collapse 2040? What what actually did the model back in 1972 suggest? So... At the time, what the report showed were, uh, based on this model, it ran various scenarios. And there, so there was the business as usual one, which ran on historical averages only, where we are tracking most closely with at the moment. And what you see is indeed is that there's a, there's a, there's a slowing in our growth around present time, meaning we're at the top. So we would be at the top in terms of industrial output and also notably our welfare levels. And what you then see is that, which is typical for collapse, they're starting to go slow decline. And so this is technically where you can still go, well, okay, so we're maybe you can call it a recession and we'll, we'll go back to as usual. But actually with a collapse, then a real steep decline starts to set in. And that would be put around uh, the middle of this century. And then at some point, uh, you know, and then you go, you you go down a lot in things like industrial output, food production in the model, also population. So we will see an increase in mortality and of course also in welfare levels. With that also other things that were causing the collapse like pollution go down as well. So we plunge back below Earth's carrying capacity. And then at that point, the system we had in the past is is broken. That's what a collapse is. It doesn't mean the end of civilization, but it means the system that we had before, our societal system, is now broken beyond repair and we will have a new system. And in the meantime, I suppose there's this big period of uncertainty where I imagine, and I know a lot of people are writing about this, while ever we don't have a new system in place, there's probably going to be an incredible amount of social unrest, an incredible amount of despair, depression. Um, If we're going to have mortality rates increasing, to be a fellow human on the planet witnessing that... um, is going to take an incredible toll on humanity. So while we might not all be wiped out, um, it's it's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be deeply, deeply uncomfortable and unfamiliar and uncertain. 
increase in mortality is, you know, and we know this already from predictions from climate scientists that certainly in certain parts of the world that are more vulnerable to climate change, there's, that's just a lot of suffering. And with that will come a lot of conflict. There will be, there will be climate refugees, of course, which um, we are already not doing great in Europe and the US with that. So they're going to increase. There's going to be more of that social tension as well. And and I think for people like you and I, we, we're going to be more on the lucky side, I think. Climate change will happen to all of us, for certain. We'll be impacted relatively less, but we, we will have to watch that suffering. And I think that's that's going to take a toll. So this whole study was measuring was working to this idea that we think that we can keep growing, right? You know, so business as usual is growing infinite growth on on this planet. Like we'll just keep growing, GDP will keep growing. Okay, cool. Yes, and then next to that there were several other scenarios with different assumptions. So another scenario was the stabilized world one where we let go of the growth pursuit. The assumption in stabilized world was that we let go of this industrial output growth pursuit and we redirect resources that are freed up from that to um, uh, things like education and healthcare, as well as uh, strong pollution abatement. So really what that means is, in less technical terms, is that we uh, reprioritize in society, right? So instead of pursuing more stuff, ever more stuff, uh, we prioritize human well-being and ecological well-being is, is how I would interpret that. What's also interesting about the business as usual scenario is that the cause of collapse is the accumulated pollution from the industrial output. Now, pollution is a general variable in the model, but I, I personally think that that is basically the climate change proxy scenario because greenhouse gases are also pollutants. They're not the only pollutant, but it's an important one, right? But there were other scenarios as well. There were 12 in total. Another one is, for example, where they assume unprecedentedly high technological innovation rates. That's the comprehensive Mm -hmm. technology scenario. And they did that because a lot of people will say, well, we will innovate ourselves out of these environmental constraints. That's a very prevalent belief. There's not a whole lot really in the empirical data on it. So that's why I call it a belief. But so to address that, they also ran that scenario. And what you see there is that the collapse is much less. So a real steep decline from a previous peak is avoided, but you still see some declines because it's, and and I think that was the ultimate conclusion of that book that they said, you know, we don't want to get too hung up on this 2040 necessarily because it's not meant for point predictions. We just think that somewhere around that time in the 21st century, just the general dynamics that you see in the world indicate that growth, the industrial output growth, will halt one way or another. And so we have a choice. We do not have the option to keep growing forever on a finite planet, which if you think about it is Makes not sense. that illogical a conclusion. Yeah. But we do have a choice to maintain our current high levels of welfare or have it decline as a result from ecosystem breakdown, basically. And that was in the 70s, right? So that's that's quite a long time ago. And at the time, in the 70s, humanity in total was still below Earth-carrying capacity. 
as measured by Wackernagel's ecological footprint. And so at that time, it would have been much easier to make a transition away from this ultimate growth pursuit. And unfortunately, despite it being a bestseller, that is not what humanity chose. Humanity, I think, shows in the empirical data that they chose to maintain business as usual. And so as a result now, we're, we're, we've been for decades above the Earth's carrying capacity. I've got a quest, couple of questions from, from all of that. The f- carrying capacity, I, I understand that it was around about mid-70s that we started to exceed our Earth c- carrying capacity, but could you actually explain what it means? Yes. So you see this in, in, in other ecosystems as well. This is Ecologists use this a lot. Let's say you have a smaller ecosystem, let's say a pond, that's an ecosystem too. There's only so many fish or ducks or that kind of stuff that that pond can maintain, that can feed and et cetera, that can absorb the pollution that's created, et cetera. And it's the same for our earth. So we have a, a finite amount of arable land, water, that sort of thing. And so that's measured on a planetary scale by the ecological footprint. Yeah, and my understanding is that it's somewhere around we're consuming sort of the equivalent of five to seven times what we should be. It's sort of like we need the resources of five planet Earths to actually sustain the level of consumption we're at now. Have I got that right? Yes, and that's actually the difference between, for example, eco-products or green innovation or even green growth and true sustainability. Like sustainability is where you are at most, at one Earth, right? So you can sustain your current levels of well-being. And what we see that a lot that is being called sustainable, they say things like it's more sustainable, but that just typically means less damaging. But so that would be mean if we all did this, then maybe we would only need two planets, but that's still not really sustainable. So sustainable is an absolute statement where green is more of a a relative statement. So when this report said collapse, societal collapse, global collapse, whatever it might be, I mean, what were they, what were they suggesting? What do they mean by that? Because, and I think there's different stages, right? So we reach a peak in terms of our ability to consume a certain amount and, and, and sort of keep that growth going and then growth will stop. And I've heard this from a number of different quarters, but it's so interesting that this was almost predicted in 1972 when numbers were being crunched. So, so what do what are we really talking about when we are talking about collapse? Yeah, and and thank you for that question because collapse is such an emotional word, word, right? I think that's why also there was such a backlash because it sounded like a prediction of doom. Well, really, it wasn't, and it was never meant to be a prediction, but it was more of a a warning. But this is what you see in ecology a lot. It's called overshoot and collapse. So you have a population that goes up against the growth steadily, like human population has done. And at some point, they go beyond the carrying capacity. That's what this is. And then the next phase is where you're in overshoot. So you're above. And you can be there for a while, but you cannot sustain that. And so at some point, you will see a slowdown and a halt and then you start to go plunge back below the carrying capacity, that's called the collapse. It does not mean that the species will die out completely. That's what I said. It it doesn't mean end of civilization. It does mean, what collapse really means is that the system that you had before is now permanently damaged and will not go back to what it was like before. So we have 
a new system. What are the implications of that then? Because we're we're veering towards it. 2040 was the year that was mooted. What are we really looking at? Yeah, so what I found was that we are right now in a now or never moment in history. And of course, it's not just my research. It's also what basically any other scientist is saying, that we're very close to tipping points, right? We're very close to runaway climate uh, change. We're very close to an ecosystem collapse as a result from the biodiversity loss we have now lost that we know of 70% of, of wildlife species already. And biodiversity loss is it's still accelerating only. So we really are at, at this point where if we don't act drastically now, that uh, ecosystems will be lost for, forever. And so I think that's that's one of the key findings that I had, that if we do, we have a choice to still change deliberately the trajectory, but we will not get there by greener, uh, a little bit, little bit less bad every day. We have to very consciously and deliberately break away from business as usual and, to, and really make a reprioritization in society where we redirect our future data points basically towards something more closely resembling stabilized world. You know, when I say this, typically people are like, yeah, but that's a lot. That's a lot to let go of the GDP growth pursuit. I mean, our systems are not designed for that. And to that, I always say, yeah, it, it is a lot. I also don't know if we will do it. But when you say, well, we, we can't do that. Everything in our economy is built on this growth pursuit. You implicitly assume there that business as usual is a viable path forward. And from what I can tell from my own research, but really also the research of any other scientists out there, is that business as usual is not an option. It's not a possibility anyway. So we will have a different system in the future anyway. And I suggest we choose the one where we focus on human and ecological well-being. So you actually then went and crunched the numbers and to see if this 1972 report was tracking correctly. And essentially, you know, sorry to spoil the end, but you found that in fact it's tracking very accurately. And you also looked at the the CT kind of model, the comprehensive technology scenario. As you mentioned before, it is an argument that we're all familiar with. I think a lot of people go, oh yeah, we'll invent something by the time things get really bad and we will get out of trouble. But your modelling found that even with comprehensive technological advancements, the scenario is still really, really bad. There will still be a collapse. It probably just won't be as soon. Was there anything else that you found when you looked at the data and sort of, you know, tracked it since then up until now that differed from the report or is it worse or was there anything else that you found that added to what they found in 1972? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I hear this a lot uh, in, in America. This is also a prevalent notion. Elon Musk is going to save us, basically. Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge bet. Uh, I also think that it's important to note that you're right, the, the CT scenario, it doesn't necessarily show a, a, a delayed collapse, but it is de definitely less pronounced. So the, the, the declines are less steep, but it's there's still declines. There's a, that, that's a big deal. So there, there, there are declines in population, there are declines in welfare. And so uh, it's not the best case scenario. And so I always find that interesting when people bring that up, like, oh, we're going to just 
we're, we're going to hope for this technology and, 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 you know, the worst of it will be avoided if we, if we believe this model. And, and then I'm like, okay, but it's not the best case scenario. So what is so important to you in hanging on to that growth pursuit? And I think that's really what I maybe have added since then. Uh, I think the book was uh, at the time was just, I have nothing to add in the sense that it was just accurate, unfortunately. It would have been great if, if it wasn't. I think the authors would have been pleased if they were overly, turned out to have been overly concerned. Unfortunately, they were right on the money. I think they underestimated at the time how much backlash there would be to a fairly simple statement that maybe having growth as the ultimate pursuit is not the best goal for humanity. Uh, which actually at face value seems quite obvious, right? You can't have growth on a finite planet. And, but the backlash was quite intense. And I think they underestimated that at the time. And it still is really intense. There is so much resistance to the idea of slowing down growth, let alone repositioning the economy around other factors. You know, whenever it comes up as a topic, people really rail against it. I mean, can we talk about that? A little bit. As you say, and you write this in the book, only a fool keeps chasing an impossibility. And you were referring to governments there and leaders of governments who are still pursuing this model. But have you been able to explain what this insane adherence is? Like, where does it come from? And I know that there's so much dialogue around it. You've got people like Steven Pinker and Bill Gates who still talk in this language that growth has, you know, improved our lives and, uh, you know, it's resulted in all of these things. They're still saying all of this in defence of um, anyone who's sort of suggesting that things are pretty bad and dire and we might want to pay attention. What's the basis of this? You're an economist. You kind of, you know, know where this all comes from. So there are many aspects around your question, which is, of course, the key question, like what what's up with this but this obsession with growth, whoever, why is it so important? Because it is, right? We have equated it. We have all grown up, you and I, and, and people who are listening to this, have grown up in a world where it's equated with progress. And it's, it's been, we've been told ultimately that it's the only way to lift people out of poverty. So, for example, when you say, you know, I, I think we should let go of the growth pursuit, what people hear is, first of all, what they hear is anti-growth, which is not the same. But it's more of an agnostic attitude towards growth. If it contributes to human well-being, let's do it. If it doesn't, why would we bother? That's more of it. But, you know, and then the next step is that people hear your your pro-poverty, which is, of course, nonsense. I think we can lift people out of poverty with uh, directly without going through that growth, because that's, of course, also the key. It has worked to some extent in other parts of the world, specifically Asia. Absolutely, that's progress and we need more of it, but that's kind of the thing. It has come at such huge environmental costs that it doesn't seem globally scalable. So it's not a real solution then, right? Mm. And and I think in the, in the parts of the world where you and I reside, so let's say the West, there's still poverty there. So you would think that at least in these richer countries by now, after decades of the growth pursuit, at least poverty there would have been resolved. And we don't see that at all, especially in the US, where I live now. You know, the, the lower classes are really, in many ways, worse off. So I can see how Bill Gates thinks it has been great for him, because the continued growth pursuit allows for uh, a continued accumulation, an enormous concentration of wealth. And he's one of the lucky ones. But 
the majority of the population, actually, if you look at the trends of income and wealth inequality, which have worsened since the 70s significantly, and as a result of this growth pursuit, it, it hasn't really worked that well for many people. And you make the point in the book that increased inequality in a society actually makes resistance to uncoupling that society from growth even more difficult because the richer the rich get, the more powerful they get, and then they're going to want to hang on to what they've got. And there's a whole range of psychological biases that kick in, right, that that keep the very, very wealthy not wanting to let go of any of it. So it's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? I, I, I kind of don't see a way out of it, but we might get to some of your ideas around that in a moment. But I also heard that you have talked about that some of the changes that might be required to reverse this idea of growth, growth, growth at all costs will entail more labour. And I think an example that you've used in the past is regenerative farming. Okay, so, you know, it's it's been tooted as a way to sort of go about producing enough food for the planet that is indeed sustainable or as sustainable as we can get. And of course, it requires more labour. And I know that you've said this is a good thing. It's a win win because we're actually going to have a job shortage in the future. I mean, it's sort of like we're going to be doing full circle. We're going to have to switch our mindset to also doing more work. Was that kind of difficult to arrive at? Because you say that it's a win-win, that it's good news. There's going to be more work. We've got to do more work, you know. But that's, you know, for the last 30 years, we've done everything we can to avoid work. Work is very validating, uh, why are you doing this podcast? Not to become rich, I think. I'm sure it's it's, it's a very successful one. It's not the quickest way. No, <laughs> it's not the quickest way to becoming a billionaire, I think. So why do you do this? Why do I do this? You know, I started in finance. I, I could have been in private equity by now. And uh, But I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm quite certain I would be miserable. So that's the point. People are driven by very different things after their basic needs are met, which is key. If I may, before I answer your question, I, I do want to jump back to what you said, because I think it's actually very important. It's an important point. And I don't want to be too descriptive to telling people what to think, basically. But I, I think it's worth when you have this thought, which we all have, even myself still, of thinking that, you know, the only way for progress is through growth. I think it's worth asking yourself who benefits from that story, because it's, it's, I would say it's not true. Who benefits from that assumption. And it's, as you mentioned, growth is, in fact, the only way to lift people out of poverty without the ultra-wealthy having to give anything up. Because when the pie is growing, you can just give them other people the extras. There is a way to lift people out of poverty, but that would mean that some wealthy people will have to share more. And I think that's why maybe that narrative is sometimes so reinforced sometimes by certain people. And I think it's not even that deliberate. I think they genuinely believe it. But I personally think that's that's part of it as well. It really benefits certain people. Because as you say, it's, you're completely right. We have a very strong psychological bias. Uh, and we know this, right, from behavioral economics now, that uh, against loss. So we're not, we're, we're much easier with forgoing millions than losing them. So once you get to a certain point in society where there's there's so much concentrated wealth, it's going to be very difficult for for them to give them up. So it's it's not going to be an easy transition in that sense. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Earlier on, you mentioned, in fact, right at the outset, you mentioned that this initial 1972 report really drew on systems thinking and, you know, this, this idea of complexity. And, and you obviously used the same kind of modelling and approach when you did your follow-up study. I'm just wondering if you might be able to explain to listeners exactly how systems thinking operates, because it's cropping up in a number of the interviews that I'm doing at the moment. And I think it's something that a lot of analysts and commentators are appreciating as sort of almost an art form that is required to dismantle and understand and then find solutions for the situation the world finds itself in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because what we see a lot is when you don't have a good idea of the system that you're working in, you're only going to focus on a part. And then you typically have unintended consequences somewhere else. Uh, again, that's that's typically with the technological things. You Okay, but we have a technology for this now. Great. But, okay, so we have slightly less carbon emissions. But then you underestimated the behavioral aspect of that where people are like, oh, it's less carbon emissions, so we can use more. And then the total emissions don't go down. Or you miss the other environmental aspect of, uh, oh, well, we do need a lot more resources to build this better technology, I suppose. So, okay, we have to mine a lot more and, and with all the environmental and social impacts of that. So that's typically why you need to have a systems view to really uh, have go to the root causes. And of course, what the limits to growth found was the ultimate root cause is this growth pursuit. And so that's where you have to work on. Hmm. The thing is with systems as well, though, is unlike, you know, this kind of linear way that we've been doing things in recent history, where we think we can kind of come in with a a simple fix, right? You know, and that'll turn the tide. The way that systems thinking operates is it often has to use levers, things that will steer things in a bit of a direction and and move things over time. And you've identified five levers, two of which are environmental, but three are also social. Could you talk us through each of those five? Absolutely. But again, I just want to come back to all the excellent points you're making. It's very true. And this is also why there's sometimes some resistance. I see some Uh, people, and I would say especially older white men, have become very married to the mental model where they make a decision and there's control. They control things in their lives. And so when you start talking about systems, 
you, there's no control in the system. You can be impacted by parts in the system where you had absolutely no influence on. And then you do have some influence in the system in other parts, maybe, but still there's not really control. And I think, again, that's another psychological barrier that some people have where, uh, you know, you're going to be impacted by things and your actions here have impacts on people, say poor people in Africa, for example, that you never intended, you know? And so there's a resistance there too, because you're like, wait, am I a bad person for eating steak? Like, So I think there's also a lot of psychological resistance there to this, this kind of systems approach to the world. Since then, this Limits to Growth report was actually commissioned by the Club of Rome, which uh, is, a, is a group of 100 thinkers from around the world around what they call the the predicament of humankind so the continuous persistent problems they actually started with this question all the way back in the 17s where they came together in rome that's why they're the club of rome and and they said despite all our progress and our innovation why do we see these continuous problems of poverty disease conflict pollution scarcity Presumably these things are interrelated, but how? And they asked a group of MIT scientists, and that's how ultimately the limits to growth was uh, was written. And so they still exist today. And so 50 years later, they made a new model of the world. And with because basically they said, okay, well, now that um, I guess the warning wasn't heeded, we uh, have run out of time. We need transformative change now. So where are leverage points in this global system that we have to really make transformative changes because that's the thing with the system once you understand it you can find leverage points where if you if you work there you have a disproportionate effect in the system so indeed there are five leverage points two of them are environmental energy that's obvious right we need to electrify things we need to go to solar and wind etc and use less of it and use less of it. Very true. Yes, those three things. And and then there's agriculture, as you mentioned. We have regenerative agricultural practices. The current agricultural practices are, are, are very uh, depletive. And so they drive desertification, mass biodiversity loss, etc. So, But we do need to eat and we have still have a growing population. So that, that's also not sustainable. Uh, there is a way to have regenerative agriculture where you where you don't just sustain the ground, but you actually replenish it. So there are practices like that. It's very possible. So, so that's what you mean by a lever is where we can shift practices, whether it's in the energy arena or whether it's in the agricultural arena, and that can be enough to 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 switch the systems around and really make a big difference. Yes, although we need all five of them. So they find okay. we have to work in all these five. These first two, I think, are very are relatively easy to understand. But they also say there's, the other three leverage points are actually social. And I think this is an important point to make, that another one is very much strongly, deliberately reducing income and wealth inequality within countries. And, and they say they found that that transition will simply not be made. That energy transition will not, it will be resisted by the majority of the population, uh, which is what you have seen so far. Because if the energy transition is not just, people will resist it. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. We are absolutely seeing that. We're seeing that with the cost of switching to renewables. Let's just even take the example of buying solar panels. If we do have a huge disparity in income, that transition, we can we can try to make them as sexy as we like. We can make, you know, we can make electric cars as sexy as we like. But if people, if there's a growing gap between the rich and the poor, it will not happen en masse. And that's what you saw, for example, with the yellow vests and in France. And France is very into, you are in Paris right now, they're very into environmental sustainability. But what you saw was that a Macron first got rid, got rid of the wealth tax and then implemented a carbon tax. So I, I always felt that it wasn't against, the protests weren't against climate change action, they were against the unjust transition part of that action. So, and I think you will keep seeing that. Obviously, you see that in the US as well, where I am. Uh, and, and it's understandable. If you are a coal worker, there need to be robust programs for you, robust programs to, uh, during that transition, it needs to be guaranteed because otherwise, and that's, that is going back to what you mentioned before, people's basic human needs need to be met first before they can be more longer term thinking. So I, I want to come back to that because you asked about that. And I think it's an incredibly important point. But first, I will go to the, the other two leverage points. Uh, so the other one is um, reducing inequalities between countries. So the income and wealth inequality between countries in the world is just is even worse. <laughs> and You know, as, as Barack Obama once said, in such an unequal world, there will never be stability. And so these, for example, these geopolitical things that we we, we see happening and it, they keep happening is also a result of these enormous inequalities between countries. And there is so much to unpack there that we probably don't have time to go into, but there is obviously the the colonial history there that I think matters, right? The, the rich countries have already contributed to most of the carbon emissions that we're seeing in the atmosphere right now. You, because you hear a lot like, oh, but these richer countries have decoupled. First of all, they haven't decoupled sufficiently to keep in target with the Paris Agreement. But even that, they're different kind of emissions. They're luxury emissions, right? They're not for their basic needs anymore. I think there's a qualitative difference between wants and needs. Uh, I think the carbon emissions to meet somebody's basic needs like food and shelter and health in a different part of the world and the carbon emissions that come with that are qualitatively different from the carbon emissions of eating Brazilian steak in the Netherlands. Uh, so I think that's a, the kind of conversation we need to have, especially because there's still neo-colonialism where we, the West, Their, their consumption is basically still based on the extraction of resources from most of the world with all the environmental uh, impacts from that as well. So there's, there's a huge, how do you say that? I wouldn't say, you know, it falls in the regenerative part where I would say it's more of a, a restorative, a redemption almost of, of deliberately bringing down our own material footprint in the West so that other parts in the world can still grow to meet their human needs. And again, that goes back to, I'm not anti-growth. I just think we need to look, at, be a bit more selective about what kind of growth we want. The fifth one is gender equality, basically. Which is really surprising because when I read that in your book, I thought, how does that work, you know? Yeah, you know, again, a thing we can talk about 
for a, a long or a short time. But I mean, is it really that surprising that, I mean, it, it, the, the misogyny and sexism in the world is really quite staggering. So you're basically underutilizing a majority of the population. So you can see how enabling them, I don't like the word empowerment because women are already powerful. It would just be nice to not curtail them and let them yield that power. But so I think if we, if we do that, you, you will see massive uh, changes in, in the world as well. If we just stop underutilizing women's potential to work towards a better future. So to, to sort of focus on ag or focus on energy alone, which seems to be what the tech world and, you know, you mentioned white, older men who've worked to a very material, black and white, rationalist way of solving problems, you know, in recent history. If we, if we focus up just on that without adjusting the other levers at the same time, we're literally not going to get anywhere. The systems are not going to shift. And it's just such a wonderfully beautiful and also intuitively right perspective on all of this because I think most of us here, myself and everybody listening, we know that it's insane. We can't actually make just bludge these second and third world countries with an energy transition without actually addressing their original needs. So yeah, it, it is. It, it kind of makes a hell of a lot of sense and we have been talking about all of this for quite some time but we haven't instigated it. Indeed, we have been. So that's kind of the point. If the if all we needed were technical solutions to environmental issues, we would have solved climate change by now. And it's not just environmental and technological, it's deeply social as well. Yeah, that's just really, really interesting. Have you seen anywhere in the world where this kind of mindset, this approach is is taking hold? Are there parts of the world, are there governments anywhere on this planet where they're starting to really address the problem with this mindset? It's actually very prevalent throughout human history. So let's start with that. And those ways of organizing, I think, are most uh, well-preserved in indigenous populations today. And that's why you also see that countries where where governments have implemented more of these things are typically also the ones that talk to their indigenous population the most. So if you look at Costa Rica, for example, it's the country that is actually on target with its climate goals. It, it's not perfect. The country is not perfect, okay? But uh, it still has it has a law where nature has rights and, and those kind of things. And that's, But those have been designed very with, with a lot of input from their indigenous populations. So there are governments that do it, but I would say if, you, if, you, if you're asking where is that that kind of way of living most preserved, I would say, in indigenous populations. And again, that's because historically, that's how we have been organizing. That's so interesting. And that you would mention Costa Rica, because also they've got a reputation for longevity. And it's one of the blue zones of the world where people live the longest. And so obviously, well-being plays into all of this as well. Yeah. and, and But that's the thing, right? Costa Rica has this term called pura vita and but i think these these things are also it's it's very i'm i have a global perspective but ultimately the solutions will be very local in the sense that they're going to be implemented locally but really in 
uh, very much tailored to the local environment, but also the lo local culture, right? So, but, and you have this everywhere in Africa, you have Ubuntu um, and, and Asia, of course, has a, a lot of different cultures where there's more of a, a, the idea of balance. But you have this in, in Latin American countries as well. There's a lot of these concepts of buen vivir and in Costa Rica, the pura vida, of the pure life, right? So that's very close, I think, to the concept of, of well-being that, of course, is much more of a Western concept. Yeah. I mean, your book and, and the initial 1972 report talks about limits. And I I get the sense that It'll actually be us hitting up against the planetary boundaries that will get us to change our ways. It, I would love to think that we do it beforehand because, you know, there's modelling out there that shows us what's going to happen if we don't. But I feel that it's going to take those tipping points to happen. We're going to have to hit that boundary, that limit, before we really wake up to this kind of thing. And, and you actually say this in your book. So either we choose our own limits and then we maintain our welfare levels or we have limits to growth forced upon us through climate change and ecosystem breakdown. What do you think I, will honestly happen, given that we've only got a handful of years to make this radical shift? I think, well, the, the most honest answer to the question is I, I don't know. But if you, because I really don't know, and history is full of unexpected jumps by humanity, However, I think if we're looking at where we are now and, for example, how governments, recent governments like the UK, large energy companies like Shell have actually withdrawn their stated climate goals that were never sufficient anyway. It, it certainly looks like as a whole, despite a lot of people doing great, great stuff right now, as a whole, we have decided to uh, have limits to growth forced upon us. And that, that's unfortunate. I think that that's going to cause a lot of unnecessary suffering. But again, it doesn't mean that we're going to die out. And after that, we're going to have a new system. And I'm, I'm still seed, uh, sowing the seeds for that new system with, by doing podcasts like this. Yes, yes. Me too. That's quite intense, isn't it? it I, that's, that's quite, that's a bit, you know, and I, I take no pleasure in saying that. No, I appreciate you being honest. I think it's time we are honest because I think I've interviewed all kinds of climate scientists and experts over the years and, to be honest, the private conversations I have with them are very different to the ones that they put out in public and I think we need to say it as, as it is. I've got one final question. You say quite often that planetary boundaries are sacred. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think these, uh, I think they're both sacred. So the planetary boundaries that we can't go beyond are sacred. I also think the human needs are other boundaries that we shouldn't fall below, very much in line with Kate Rayworth's donut. I think those are also sacred. The thing with the sacredness is, and that's actually what I wanted to come back to, to your question earlier, is that our, when we talk about human needs, we have the basic needs like food and shelter. But above that, our needs become much more social and ultimately spiritual. And I actually think, and that's where the win-win 
lies in this is that when you talk about the doing more work, so you have uh, typically have uh, less resource used to meet the same human needs, the work that creates the social connection and the sense of community that a lot of people are, are lacking even in the rich countries, especially in the rich countries, actually. So that's where, so le- when you say letting go of the growth pursuit, you do say less stuff. This is certainly true, but it's not just giving things up. You also gain a lot of connection and a Above that, a sense of purpose, because once you get to limits, I think that's working at the limits. That's that's where life happens. That's where making do together, working with other people in your community to work within those limits. That's where your purpose lies. And I think that's actually a lot of people. And we notice from surveys in rich countries, the majority of the popu- of of workers are disengaged at work. They don't feel like there's a lot of purpose in their job, and that's mental suffering too. And so you you have less stuff, but you have way more meaning uh, in your life. I think when you work, when you just accept limits, and I think the sacredness lies in that. Yeah, that's a really lovely note to to finish up on. And I have to say, I agree with you. I, I don't know what it's going to take for our mindset to shift to understanding that less is so much more. But gosh, I hope we do it before we, we get smacked in the head with that planetary boundary. I hope so too. And I haven't given up hope completely, but I, I do appreciate that, you know, it's 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 not looking great. And it's funny when, when I mention this, it makes some people uncomfortable, very understandably so. It's not a nice prospect. But I also noticed that in some people like yourself, and, and I have this a lot with the younger generation, there's almost a sense of relaxation because they already knew this. There's a lot of eco-anxiety among people, especially younger people. And at least when you say that, there's for a moment, they are released of this cognitive dissonance of where we are pretending it's going to be fine because we have green growth. So, you know, and, and, and at some level, many people know that this prosperity cannot last. And I would say that's another great part about working within limits is there's a peace of mind where you know that what we have now We'll still be there tomorrow. And I think that's, uh, that's real wealth as well. Well, that's quite the note to finish on, right? But Gaia's right. Those of us who deal in the truth are often relieved not to have to contend any longer with dissonance, with you know, dealing with non-truths of trying to make the messages palatable. I don't think people lose hope with the truth. I think the, the opposite is true and I think it gets us wide awake and committed when we speak the truth. So two other possibly very Dutch truth bombs I took from that conversation with Gaia. The first, she and I, and no doubt most of you listening, are on the same page about infinite growth as an insanely illogical concept. But I like how she frames this idea or this bit of indoctrination that growth is required for progress and for lifting the poor out of poverty. Her point makes so much sense. Just lift people out of poverty directly. Why rely on some intermediary step of growth, of rising the tides, as they say? She, of course, provides an answer for this. Uh, Growth is the only way poverty can be alleviated without the rich having to give up something. And ain't that the truth? The second truth bomb, and it really says things quite wonderfully, and I'll quote her again here. So, either we choose our own limits, she writes, 
and then we maintain our welfare levels. Or we have limits to growth forced upon us through climate change and ecosystem breakdown. It's quite the choice, right? And I'm not sure we'll heed the warning any more than we did in 1972. I'm interested in what you think. And feel free always to comment over on Substack and you'll see the link to that in, um, in the show notes. But there's no reason why we can't just start living to the better credo ourselves right now, you know, to be the change we want to see. At the very, very least, you know, it means we're not going to be living in a cognitive dissonance. We'll be living in truth. I'm going to keep this conversation going on WILD for quite some time to come. Gaia referenced donut economics, and that's something that I'll be looking at in an upcoming episode She also mentioned Indigenous systems thinking, and you might want to go back and catch up on a conversation from three to four episodes back with Tyson Yonker-Porter. It's a great episode and explains how Indigenous knowledge can work around these complex issues. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. I'll catch you next week. 